0: We'll come back to part two of our episode. The insights we touched upon in part one merely scratched the surface. We are very excited to continue where we left off. So what is the eligibility criteria for your organization to to facilitate funding to organizations? And what are some common pitfalls that you see from target organizations that prevent them from securing a deal. How can organizations listening to this episode tailor their offering before approaching you? And to Emily specifically, what are some investment principles, standards, and frameworks that you consider when evaluating investing in different sectors?
1: Yeah, probably, I'd say for Halcyon, I don't think any of the, the criteria that we're looking at will be a surprise. They're, they're very similar to, to what others will be looking at. Of course, starting with impact, looking at product market fit, the team, competitive positioning, financials, traction, all of this features, both for our fund as well as for the, the Angels Network. I'd say one of the pitfalls that we see from, from entrepreneurs is really not having that sort of the traction and product market fit story, ready for the right time when they're when they're raising, and this is something that I think is always very difficult when we're looking at the pre-seed and seed stage, folks are are hungry and really do need that capital. But making sure that capital ask is timed when they're actually ready for it and are best positioned to make the ask to investors. I think that having some of that patience and being able to build out that traction and that story and really being able to define that product market fit so it's uh, very clear to potential investors is something that I know is difficult for entrepreneurs to have that kind of patience, but I think is really critical so that not making an ask, which you don't get too many bites of that apple, but not making that ask before they're really ready to and best positioned to make that ask.
2: For the IFC, I think we are a public development finance institution, so obviously uh, we have a responsibility towards our shareholders, the government of our countries. This is ultimately public money, so there is a lot of scrutiny that comes with it. In addition to all the obvious points, including uh, ESG considerations and, of course, show a good track record and a robust and sustainable plan, I want to draw attention to a condition which is perhaps pretty unique to IFC, which is something that we call additionality. Basically, for every project, We need to ask ourselves why an institution like IFC needs to be involved and why can't the private sector provide either the necessary capital or the knowledge. This question is fundamental and we ask it for every project. So we need to prove to our shareholders that our money and our contribution is additional, that the private sector would not provide it without our help. And while this may pose a little bit of a higher bar, I think it's also a great opportunity for IFC to work with our clients to improve improve their processes, their governance, their ENS practices, their gender strategies, their development impact. And so it's really something that we are that we are quite, pr- quite proud of. And I think, uh, you know, the degrees, of course, uh, vary between investments and between clients. And if we take equity, we obviously have more space to, to influence them perhaps with a loan. But these are all critical factors that we look at. So our ability to add value and to be additional to the investment.
3: Wahid, we at Calvert have a rigorous and detailed research system that covers around seven thousand securities at a given point in time, give or take. And it's through this system that we really line up companies relative to their industry peers using ESG research models that help provide a, a benchmarking of those companies relative benchmarking those companies' ESG performance relative to one another. So I mentioned earlier the Calvert Principles for Responsible Investment, and one of the key pillars of that is environmental sustainability and resource efficiency. As part of that, depending on the company's business model, we may look at the company's management of water scarcity and assuring efficient and equitable access to clean resources, and and that's going to be particularly relevant, say, for water-intensive businesses like beverages and semiconductors. But we're also looking at companies that are diminishing their climate-related risks and reducing their carbon emissions. So that will be particularly relevant for, say, utilities companies, the resources sector in general. And then the second pillar of the Calvert Principles is equitable societies and respect for human rights. And so respect for consumers by fair marketing practices and safe products will be really important for anything that touches the consumer sector, whether it's food products, household and personal products, for example. We do look at diversity and gender equity across workplaces as a core issue for all companies, regardless of the industry that they are in. And then particularly for businesses that are reliant on human capital, so financials, technology, will have a really keen focus on retention and talent development programs, employee turnover over, accountability of leaders and managers to those types of goals. And then consistent throughout everything we do, obviously, is accountable governance. So, that will be respect for shareholder rights, appropriate board composition, appropriate accounting and transparency around accounting practices. So, really, we're looking at industry-specific metrics depending on where the company is operating in. But I wanted to call out something that David mentioned, which was the importance of holding companies to engage with them. That's a core part of our philosophy as well, So one of the things that we also look at is if we see a company that is attractive for whatever reason, but also perhaps has some issues, we will look at whether we think that that company is engageable, whether we're going to be able to influence that company constructively over a period of time towards better performance.
4: I would echo the the point that was mentioned earlier around additionality. And I think this is a really important aspect of within the impact investing space is as particularly as we see more and more players entering the impact investing community and with the intergenerational wealth transfer that's taking place and more and more interest from the next generation in investing in ways that is socially and environmentally responsible and with more traditional private equity funds entering the impact space, they need to really sort of think about what is the additionality of the investments that are being made and what would happen if the investment were not made what are the other sources of capital and to some of the conversations earlier also around looking at blended finance that typical investments will serve some companies in really powerful ways but having looking at where in some cases it might be more you know, grant funding is really the best source of funding for this particular challenge that a company is focused on or whether a sort of blended capital stacks that can be you know really helpful for the growth of those companies. So being able to identify, depending upon the particular needs that companies are looking at, what is the right source of capital and the right investors you know, for that capital is is something that we that we think about a lot.
5: Yeah, I think that's an incredibly important perspective to actually consider if the kind of capital that an entrepreneur is sort of asking for is exactly the right one for them. So I appreciate that comment, Jenna. I think I would echo what so many have shared in terms of the need to really evaluate some of the the fundamentals of whether or not a company is prepared for a private equity investment because we use equity primarily at Acumen, where they are in terms of the stage of the company. The other thing we look at is whether or not the kind of support that they're going to need as they go through the process of kind of stabilizing their business model and, and preparing for growth is support that we're in a good position to offer, or if they in fact need something quite different. One of the things I think because we are a company with a a global vision, but very much local execution, we have in-country investment teams and in-country investment committees. So from an eligibility perspective, we are looking for companies that are operating and impacting communities in the regions where we invest, essentially East and West Africa, India, Pakistan, Latin America, and the U.S., and then have a very solidly grounded team in place within the region, rather than someone sort of coming in from outside or who's planning to spend part of their time in region. And the other piece, because of the poverty focus that I think is a bit distinctive, is a lot of companies have a kind of theory of change about how their business model might impact low income or vulnerable people, but they may not yet be positioned to effectively evaluate that. So we will work with them to do 60 decibels evaluation before we invest as part of our due diligence, which for us is also a way of creating value for the company in case we don't ultimately invest. It gives them a perspective on um, how they're reaching low-income people that could help inform their business model as they evolve and in case they want to purchase at some point in the future. So we think a lot about our due diligence as a way to add value for companies and help them in that sort of process of preparation for investment. And I would say another major criteria for us as we operate in economies that often face lack of transparency or bribery or corruption as kind of common practice is we are really looking for entrepreneurs of character who really believe that following a path of transparency and ethical practices is critical to building a more inclusive economy. So we have a a zero tolerance policy when it comes to issues of lack of transparency or keeping multiple sets of books. And even there, we know that it's it's really a, impossible sometimes to get the full picture and due diligence, but we really seek to spend enough time with entrepreneurs to understand where they're coming from and if there's values alignment, in addition to having a business model that is prepared to go down that path of scale and reach the target markets that we're focused on. So it's a lot to juggle, but I think for us, it feels like, again, our goal is not necessarily to optimize for the size of our portfolio or the returns of the portfolio, certainly not with our pioneer investing, but to really identify role models that could help inform how we think about business and use of capital moving forward.
0: Finally, to wrap up today's session with a significant rise in the social and environmental impact investment and responsible investment agenda. Are you seeing that translate into meaningful flow of capital to fund managers and are there sufficient high quality bankable opportunities to fund if this capital is accessible? And from Emily's perspective, how closely tied is the capital inflow to ESG funds today to the performance metrics? Has there been a noticeable stronger correlation between fund performance and increased capital allocation?
1: I'd say at the sort of pre-seed and and seed stage level, we haven't seen the spigot open up yet. I think there's a lot of opportunity and a lot of statements that have been made about large pools of capital that are being allocated or diverted to focus on climate we still see many of the arguments about, you, know, you asked a question about bankable projects or projects that are ready for, for investment. I think there's still, still that gap. Though, from our side, being both an incubator and an investor, we believe that the opportunities are out there. I'm not sure that we have adjusted as a community our risk appetite to match the scale of the crisis that we are currently facing, nor the speed at which that crisis is is coming for us, right? So, I think we, in some ways, are operating under old principles that aren't necessarily correlated to really how fast and at what scale we need to move. And I think that's a it's a challenge for for this entire community to be able to to reorient our models to be able to deploy capital in a way that actually meets the challenge in a time horizon that can make a difference because we know there is a, a time limitation on how much how long we have to act to address this climate crisis.
2: So I agree with Dan that regarding impact investing, there has been a big change in the last year, year and a half. And obviously, this follows the big changes that we've seen in in equity markets and more generally in in asset management. But look, it's very hard to estimate the impact investing market. Our friends and colleagues at Gene estimate that around over 3,000 organizations currently manage $1.2 trillion in, in asset under management purely for impact and while this is growing, this is just 2% of global assets under management and, and really very short of the estimated 4.2 trillion funding gap that is needed to achieve the SDG targets. However, I think it's also important to recognize that the, the impact investing market has Maybe underestimated, but also we think that there is a substantial pool of money that is at least interested in this in this asset class. A couple of years ago, we did an estimation by looking at private households and institutions' appetite for impact investments at various level of returns, and we estimated that the investor appetite for impact investing could be as high as twenty six trillion dollar, or about ten percent of global capital markets, including twenty one trillion in publicly traded stocks. and and bonds and $5 in in private markets. Uh, Of course, you know, markets change and there's been a big shakeup in the last year and a half. But look, the analysis and the stats show that the the, the sector is is expanding, that there is demand. There are, however, some challenges on top of turbulent financial markets, obviously the changes in interest rates and in bonds. With a focus on emerging markets, I think, as in less challenging periods, flows into emerging markets are more difficult for impact investors risk aversion is more pronounced and more work is needed really to make the case for investment funds in, in emerging markets. As I said earlier, the interest and ma- the interest rate and macro environment continue to be challenging and fund managers in emerging markets are finding difficulty hitting their targets. And so clearly investors are more reluctant to allocate capital into impact funds that are still perceived as, as higher risk. These conditions may also mean that there is less tolerance for perceived return concessions and greater focus on less risky strategy. There is a recalibration among investment managers and how they allocate their time to investee support, which I think is is a critical part. But I think also with, with any change, we are seeing good signs and really reassuring signs. We are seeing that the best fund managers, the most robust, are not only surviving, but also potentially thriving. And so this is very encouraging for us, and we hope to see more activity as soon as, as the next as six to 10 months.
3: Wahid, you asked me about capital inflow to ESG funds and performance metrics, and I think performance here can be thought of in two ways. So we have financial performance and ESG metrics performance. So just a couple of weeks ago, Morgan Stanley released a study that they do periodically looking at sustainable funds, inflows and relative performance. And in the first half of this year, what that report shows is that the median returns of sustainable funds as classified by Morningstar compares with traditional funds very favorably, about 6.9% median returns for sustainable funds compared to 3.8% of traditional funds. And this relative outperformance held true across all asset classes and geographies. So, really interesting. We're seeing in the equity space, a real rebound compared to last year where there was underperformance and also in the fixed income side, more muted, but still relatively stronger performance of sustainable fixed income funds than traditional funds. And really what we're seeing is that that last year in the first half of 2022, we had, as David mentioned, these challenging macro factors like an inflationary environment, a change in the global interest rate regime, the war in Ukraine that really pivoted global markets away from long-term growth factors and sustainable funds have tended to be more exposed to those longer-term growth factors in the way that they are allocated. And this trend has started to reverse in the second half of 2022 and has continued in 2023 so far. And what this is interestingly correlated with is an increase in flows and in the AUM assets under management for sustainable funds. So by the end of June this year, Sustainable funds AUM had increased globally to over 3 trillion, which is close to the 2021 high of 3.3 trillion. And overall, we've hit a new high in the proportion of sustainable funds of 8% of total AUM. That's a new high figure that's been recorded. And in terms of inflows, we've seen positive inflows for sustainable funds this year of 57 billion. But interestingly, even last year when there was relative underperformance financially of sustainable funds compared to traditional funds, there were still net positive inflows. So, despite the various headwinds that we've seen sustainable and responsible investing face, I think long-term capital allocators still see a lot of positive momentum in this asset class. Now, in terms of ESG metrics performance, this is an increasingly core conversation that we have with all of our clients, whether they're very sophisticated institutional clients or clients that really work with retail investors. And what we see is that obviously financial performance is a qualifying baseline. That's that's our business model is you know, investing to generate returns. But the performance on ESG metrics is a really important differentiator that more and more clients are seeking transparency into. And it's really very few other than the most mission-oriented institutional investors are willing to allocate large amounts of capital to strategies that don't deliver financial performance or relative outperformance. So with that said, we do see increasing demand for transparency, as I mentioned, and what we're seeing as a trend is more and more large institutional clients or family offices focus on quite specific ESG themes like biodiversity, agriculture, ocean health, as well as climate and diversity, and where we're generating customized solutions or asset allocation solutions for those clients we're reporting on the relative outperformance from an ESG perspective for those thematic solutions relative to a benchmark for those clients. And we think that that moving forward will be a growing trend.
4: I would echo the reflections that have been made so far in terms of the increase in capital both being raised within climate-focused funds as well as being deployed. And we've talked about so this is the role from a regulatory framework, certainly you know, within the US of the Inflation Reduction Act and you know, within Europe of requiring you know, more and more um, standards in the forms that, that funds and companies you know, have to fill out on an annual basis. I think all helps to push companies more in the direction from a sustainability perspective. Of course, one of the flip sides of that is that we're still seeing a lot of challenges in terms of communities that are really on the front lines in terms of the climate devastations, that the lack of capital being directed in those areas, although and more of an orientation of some funders to really focus on that as part of their investment decision-making strategies, but that really being an area of ongoing growth. The one other dimension that we haven't talked so much about yet, but is the, just all of the anti-ESG backlash that Is taking place right now, Um, and just the importance that I think that that's bringing to the fore in terms of the need for rigor within the ESG space that we've been talking about in this conversation so far. With the politicization of ESG, it requires I think more and more coming back to the basics of when we use some of this language. What do we actually mean? So that some of the greenwashing that we've been seeing that is not able to continue to perpetuate. So I think we're in a really interesting moment in time in terms of these conversations right now.
5: Yeah, and I think kind of echoing what folks have shared, I think there is a lot of opportunity in this space still and capital flows, but what Davida raised is of great concern for us, obviously, the that not only the increased perceived risk of investing in emerging markets, but the fact that there are in fact additional risks that are tied to global economic shocks interest rates, currency devaluations, and the need for investors to not only stay the course, if in fact their objective is to use capital to solve social problems, which again, I think is a a unique approach to using capital and not necessarily what all investors are trying to do, but for those who claim that they would like and intend for their investments to help drive greater equity and sustainability, particularly in difficult to serve emerging or vulnerable markets, there does need to be, I think, a revisioning of how that investment is being used. What we saw as a huge area of potential a few years ago around blended capital, it really requires different investors to behave differently, to accept different levels of risk in return in order to build a stack where you attract increasing levels of commercial capital off of the foundation of a first loss facility or a junior equity position that might be willing to accept higher levels of risk. That is frankly, getting harder and harder as we're seeing institutions, including DFIs, that you would expect to bring that level of flexibility or willingness to accept some kind of concessionary approach, looking to essentially match the same levels of return as a commercial player might. And so that you don't get the layering effect and you're creating a fund that is blended and that can attract commercial capital gets more and more difficult. So that's kind of what we'd like to see. It's not only the amount of capital, but the, I guess to use our earlier discussion, the shades of capital so that we can truly blend different resources from different sorts of capital providers and reach the targets that we need to, which again, Davida spoke to eloquently, that need to increase significantly if we're going to actually meet the demand. And I think the other thing we're seeing is with current investments in assets under management, with currency devaluation and local economic shocks, we see a lot of companies at risk because their investors are not willing to adjust to those shifting economic circumstances. And so we see this in the energy sector. A lot of companies that do have significant working capital debt on their books are incredibly vulnerable right now. And to me, it's really a leadership opportunity for institutions that hold those assets to say, it is actually more important for us now to sustain this industry for the sake of people and planet than to make sure that we meet all of our financial targets in the short term. Because once the companies have dissolved, we're talking about a decade period of recovery before we can establish that industry again, and that's what's at stake. So it it's a huge concern. And in terms of deal flow, I think the companies are out there, but what we would love to see more of is a willingness to look at supporting and catalyzing companies at the earliest stages. I think we need more halcyons, more acumens, others that are willing to take those early risks and help establish that ecosystem of companies that can appeal to other sorts of investors down the road that will need to see larger deal sizes, de-risked companies, higher revenue turnover, and those things rather than just a kind of wait and see what shows up. So a lot of work to do, but does feel like right now there's a need to reevaluate whether or not people are really ready to use capital for impact in the ways that it needs to be used.
0: Now, as our discussion comes to a close, it's clear that impact investing and responsible capital allocation are critical tools for driving solutions to global issues. The insights that our guests have shared demonstrate that profit and purpose can go hand in hand as more capital flows towards impact and as the impact investing momentum gains traction it has immense potential to redefine the role of business and finance in society cultivating prosperity sustainable growth that benefits humanity as a whole with this episode we conclude season two of our podcast we would like to take this opportunity to thank our speakers support team and